Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Stam Audio. Stam Audio creates zero compromise recording gear that is light on the wallet. Only the best components are used, and each one goes through a rigorous testing process with one thing in mind, getting the best sound possible. Go to stamaudio.com for more info. And now your hosts, Joey Sturges, Joel Wanasek, and A.L. Levy. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Tips and Tricks. We have Zach and Matt with us. They work with John Feldman. They're awesome dudes. And yeah, welcome guys. Hi. Hey, thanks th- for having thanks us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, so let's talk about guitars, everything guitars. So first thing that comes to mind is how heavily do you normally edit guitars and at what point do you go more for performance versus editing. We try not to edit guitars as much as possible. So a lot of the riffs we do are like really simple and um, we record like a lot more, you know, big choruses and like simple type leads and like not a ton of like shreddage. So it makes it really easy for someone to play it pretty much and not have to edit it. I have a question about that because whenever somebody comes in and they have simple parts, I see myself naturally gravitating towards layering it. Is that something you guys do? Yes, we do a lot of layers. Okay, that's good to know. Um, Simple leads are easier to play more than once. Yeah. And layer up and get really cool, interesting sounds. So I was curious. By layers, you don't mean different parts. You mean the same part played multiple times. Yeah, or maybe accompanying parts too. Because, you know, the faster you get, the more notes there are. It's like hard to line everything up. Yeah, yeah. We'll do different parts. Um, We do a lot of like edge style, like dotted eighth note guitars with like a Vox. And that is really cool if there's like four or six of them. Sometimes like in stereo, it just sounds like this crazy effect. Or like, yeah. I was just doing a song that was like fade to black, like Metallica, where it's like two clean guitars and like two acoustics. And then like we layered like some mandolin and some other crazy stuff in there. So we'll layer the same part sometimes and we'll layer like a lot of different parts a lot too. And as far as guitar arrangements, are you always thinking in terms of like a bigger arrangement or are you thinking in terms of riffs? Like how do you like how do you go about that with the layering? I think it depends on like what record we're doing, you know? Yeah. Like like we're doing Black Veil Brides right now and it's like all about the riff, you know, like we had in mind that we just wanted to be classic metal. So obviously the focus is gonna be more you know, on guitar riffing and then other thing, you know, it's like, let's just lay this down real quick because it's, you know, a power chord. All right. So let's talk about the metal approach because that's what you guys are working on right now. Like what's the first thing that comes to mind for just amping? So we're still in the pre-pro writing phase, but we've been using a Kemper for all of it and it sounds amazing. We have this awesome profile. It's a profile of a, a Friedman brown eye amp and it sounds incredible. And that's our favorite so far. And as we've been like writing, we've been shooting out different amps. Like Jake, the guitar player, has this Marshall JVM. That's great. Um, we tried it through a Mesa cab. We're trying it through a Marshall cab. Marshall's sending us two amps next week that we're going to try out. We tried out all of John's amps. But honestly, the Kemper has taken the cake so far. And uh, what kind of cabs are you running? The cab, we have a... Uh, I don't know the model exactly, but it's a. I think it's just a, an old school Marshall 1960A. And that's like our standard cab that we use for pretty much everything. But for the Black Veil stuff, Jake has brought in like his Mesa, which I think Mesas are the best for metal, in my opinion. I like the Mesas on metal. Do you guys find yourself concerned with what the band will do live? The reason why I ask is I know 
there's a lot of people, you know, using the Kempers and, and the great thing about it is that you can take all your album tones, you know, yeah. on the road with you. So is that a concern that you guys have over there? Honestly, I don't really think about, I'm always thinking about what the band is going to do live, but I honestly think everyone should just use a Kemper live. I see a lot of bands doing it yeah. now and I just think it, it just sounds incredible and, and it's just so simple and I, I just don't think you can beat it. Like you could just like carry it around, like minimalize your issues because you don't have to deal with like tubes and stuff and and it sounds good like even if you don't think a Kemper sounds as good as a real thing it's it's good enough for live and the convenience and stuff makes it worth it I think and the consistency of a Kemper is just like unparalleled you know like every day you're setting up the microphone and it could be a little off axis or whatnot a different spot in the cone with the Kemper it's just the same thing every every day yeah that's definitely convenient. Yeah. So when you get to actual album tones, how often is it the Kemper versus the real amps that you guys are shooting out? Or do you shoot them out and then make a profile and use that? In general, we use amps most of the time. John's got this Hughes and Kettner that he used on, or John Feldman, yeah, he's got this Hughes and Kettner that he, he's used on like the old Story of the Year albums and the old used albums and, and pretty much every classic John Feldman album. That's what I tend to use on rhythms for almost everything. Just did a good Charlotte album and used it on that. And the Kemper, we use it for a lot of leads and stuff, but we just recently started doing this Black Veil Brides album and it's, we've been using it a lot. So it's, it's, it's mostly amps, but Kemper sometimes. So what do you think is the most important part in getting a badass guitar tone? The player? Honestly, yeah, the player. I was gonna, just going to say. We say that to people all the time. I kind of knew you guys were going to say that because that's like the only right answer. But it's hard for people to really understand that. Can you like identify what it is about a player that makes all the difference at least in your mind i mean uh, honestly i think it's experience like having recorded and knowing that like if you tilt the pick a little bit and you get like a little bit of that string scratch when you're chugging or you know just like just little nuances that you know someone that's been playing guitar and recording for you know 15 20 years is gonna know over someone who hasn't recorded an album and has only been playing for three yeah bad pick attack like bad vibrato versus <laughs> good pick attack and good vibrato you know oh man sometimes vibrato's well good vibrato's everything <laughs> uh, yeah that's what makes a good guitar player one day like um you know i just had an epiphany when i was a when i was younger and i was just like do i want to be you know alexi leho i'm it, I'm not going to, I don't want to sit in my room and practice to a metronome every day, or do I want to have, you know, vibrato like Tom Schultz from Boston? So what I did, I just practiced bends and vibrato. And I'm glad I did because I think that's so much more important than be able to play fast because there's always going to be someone out there that's going to be able to play faster than you, in my opinion. Or you could just be Ingve Malmstein and have both. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and a couple Ferraris and leather pants. <laughs> I think a great example is um, if you listen to like, any Colin Richardson album, or like for instance, Bullet for My Valentine, Scream, Aim, Fire, the riffs are badass and the tone is badass, but it sounds badass because the riffs are sick and the playing is amazing. And even if the tone was terrible, it would still sound sick. Well, the thing that I think people need to understand about sick riffs that they hear on records is that generally, I mean, I know that you can piece them together, but generally that's what it sounds like when the guy actually plays it. Like, yes. 
that's what it is coming out of the guitar. You don't have to mold it into that generally, or you shouldn't have to. Right. Unless, unless it's just a stylistic choice, I think. Uh-huh. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed for sure. So how often do you guys end up grabbing the guitar? All the time. Quite a bit. Yeah. If we're recording guitars or we're writing or we're coming up with guitar parts, we usually always both have a guitar in our hand and um, we're just bouncing ideas off the players or we're like, or the, the player will be like, I love how you just played that idea. Just like play that in really quick. And we're like, you sure you don't want to play it? And usually we make them play it just because I like to have the actual players play it. But yeah, a lot of the times like our guitar playing will end up on records and stuff. So all the time. How do you deal with the situation then when the player absolutely sucks and you're forced to uh, play the guitar for them without hurting too many or should say too much of their feelings. Usually it's really weird. Like a lot of the bands that we deal with that aren't very good musicians, which which isn't that many of them, don't really like to be in the studio that much. So so we'll just be like, do you care if we play your guitar? And, and they're like, yeah, go for it. Sounds sick. And we're like, cool. <laughs> so it's easy. <laughs> and usually... If it's a guitar player that really wants to play, then I'll get them to play it. Okay. What, what do you think is the most important part of a badass guitar tone besides the player? Like what are the, or parts, like what are the other things that you think are just essential? Okay. Well, for me, just getting a tone that's like thick and spongy, not too much gain. I always try to use much lower gain. I know it's like a common thing, but I just think it, it sounds way heavier because like any sound, like a vocal or something, like I think screaming vocals are way more impactful, like when you can understand what the person is saying. A guitar is way heavier, like when you can understand what notes are being played. So less gain. And then um, in terms of like, once we have a sick sound and a sick player, my next step is the Waves SSL EQ, just messing around with the 8K and just bringing it up until the sizzle is is good. Let's talk about miking for a bit. And we had touched on the last episode we had done with you guys about the combination of mics that you guys like, but what do you usually aim for in a speaker cab? Because, you know, you have your speaker, you know, some guys are like dead center. Some are where the center meets the dust cap or whatever the technical, you know, like the, the ring, that's what yeah. I call it, or the outer part or. Yep. That's where I am. I'll just grab my phone and take my flashlight and look at the speaker and just find where the, the cone meets the center whatever. And yeah, I'll just put the mic like right there. And that's usually the sweet spot. How close to the cab do you usually place it? Like an inch back, two inches, five, 10, 20, not at all. I've messed with different ones right now. I'm right on the cab, but sometimes I like it an inch or two back. Yeah. I, I usually like it about an inch back because it just controls the low end a little bit more. I find. Yeah, you guys said that you guys had a very specific mic setup that you used on the last episode, but do you guys ever like switch anything out or play around with that stuff? Yes, we do. I think a Shure SM7 sounds really cool on guitar. We've used that on tons of guitars. Yeah, it's generally the mic setup we talked about. We used to use a Royer all the time, but it got stolen and we just haven't gotten a new one. <laughs> so <laughs> we don't really use that, but... Yeah, we keep it pretty basic. Sure, Beta 57, KSM 32 on two different speakers right where the center meets the edge. And uh, and yeah, sometimes we'll throw an SM7 on there and we used to use a Royer, but not anymore. And, we, and we've messed around with room mics and stuff too for certain sounds, but I'm not too big on them. Yeah, what about like mic pre's? Mic pre's. All of our guitars go through, or electric guitars go through a it's called a true pre. It's like eight pre's in one. Yeah, I'm familiar with that one. Yeah. And that's just what John's used over the years. And so that's what I use. And it sounds really good to me. Do you sum it on the way into Pro Tools or sum it in Pro Tools? Yes, we sum it, but not 
like we make two aux tracks and then we blend it down to one track as we're recording. So it's not summed an like analogly or like outside of the box, but I do really want one of those Chandler pre's that has the summing switch. I think that would be really cool and save us a step so that we don't have to sum it like on the way in. But either way, at the end of the day, what you end up with that's recorded is one yes track, yes. a blend of both mics. Yeah, mm-hmm. just keep it simple. Do you ever find that like when people send you like guitar tracks that have like four mics on the same cab that shit just gets really annoying? Yeah, for sure. There's like a lot of phase issues, obviously, like a lot of people don't know how to work with phase and a lot of people have mics that are out of phase and stuff yeah i just i don't think it's like necessary i've like i've had my fun and i've tried all all the different things and blending multiple amps and using like six mics and three cabs and two heads and everything and and at the end of the day just one head one cab one to two mics just does it sounds really good so that's actually a good thing to touch on is phase when you're layering multiple parts that are doing the same thing or maybe having two amps doing you know reamping the same line or whatnot i don't know if you guys do that very often but how do you go about solving phase issues with guitar and amps when you start getting multiple ones happening to be honest i don't really run into that too much i usually just have the two mics on the cab and i Flip Good the to phase go. and yeah, it usually just works. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, <laughs> it, it just comes back to keeping it simple, like we yeah. said, you know. Because if you if you try to get too you know technical, then you can run into those issues. But we mostly just keep it the two mics and and print it on the way in, and that's that. All right, let's talk about bass. What are you guys usually doing for bass? Okay, bass. We have this P bass. I think. The only bass that has ever beat it to me was this band called Stick to Your Guns. They had this bass called the Gibson Grabber. It sounded unbelievable. And I want one really bad, but I just haven't bought one. But that sounded amazing. But other than that, Fender P bass, four or five string, depending on the band, sounds killer. Um, it goes through an Ampeg um, head into an Ampeg cab. And then we mic the cab up with a Sennheiser 421, like right on the center of the speaker. And then a blue mouse, like three feet away with like a gobo behind it. And it, it just gives this really cool low end. And then we blend that on the way in. And so so the bass goes direct through like this MBC multiband compressor pedal. And then that and then that gets split out into the amp and the DI. And um the two mics on the amp go through these Vintec pre's that we EQ on the way in. And then the DI just comes in just like in case we need it, but I don't usually use that in the mix. And then I take the amp signal and I run it through that UAD voice of God and then the UAD Harrison EQ and then the waves MV2, which is a multi-band limiter. And yeah, it's just like three plugins and it's super simple. And bass, I do run into phase issues with how do you pre-eq the tracks the mic bass tracks that go in like do you do the high low split or you're just blending them full frequency the vintex yeah yeah no i just i just blend them in i usually have the mouse like lower like the room mic a little bit lower but yeah I, i just mess with the eqs until it sounds good to me pretty much so where do you run into phase issues between the mics or with the kick between the mics and the di so the di is always like way ahead and then the sennheiser mic that's on the that's it's right on the cab on the center is usually like a little bit behind the di and then the blue mouse mic which is a couple feet away is usually like pretty delayed so what i have to do is i have to like 
go in and um, sometimes I'll use like a time adjuster plugin and find the exact amount of samples that the last one is delayed. And then I'll just like make all the other bass tracks delayed just a little bit with the plugin. Just, um, but I don't print the plugin, but it, I just keep it on the track and I just make them just delayed perfectly so that they're all like starting at the same point and they're all in phase. That's one of the biggest problems I've encountered when I uh, listen to people's work, like critting their mixes or whatnot like that's one of the main things that people just get wrong so often it's so simple and so important to get right yeah what's your approach for getting heavy bass to blend with heavy guitars but not stick out weird yet still be there and heard i would say it's the uad harrison eq that thing gives it like this crazy mid-range. I filter the low end a little bit to clean it up. And then I filter like a lot of the high off. And then I just like make the mids pop out pretty much. And I scoop the mids on the guitars. And then also like in going into the bass amp for heavier music, I drive it a little bit so that, so that it's like, it's not distorted, but it's like breaking up like kind of gainy. And I think that distortion, sometimes I'll throw like a decapitator on it, but like put the mix at like 30 or 40% and just like crush it just to give it presence. And yeah, I think just like making the bass have an edge and like a nice mid range makes it pop through the guitars. You guys do a lot of compressing on your bass? Oh yeah, big time. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention that. Yeah, on the way in on the two mics, the close mic I run through the Slate Dragon and I just like slam it. And then the the far mic I run through a uh, an LA-2A and I slam that. So when you say you slam it, can you go into a little more detail? Yeah, um, the close mic is the 1176 8 to 1 ratio attack in the middle, fastest release and just... I'll go like six to eight dB of gain reduction. And then the LA-2A, I'll just like turn that up until it's pretty much the same because it's just like one input knob. Yeah, I like opto compressors a lot on bass for tracking. They're really, really yeah. cool and hard to screw up. Yeah. But because, yeah, and yeah, I mentioned before that it, it goes through like a multiband compressor pedal on the way in and, and then it goes through the 1176 and the LA-2A. By the time it hits the computer, it's already pretty slammed. And then I slam it again with the MV2 at the end of the chain. So it's like, it's super compressed. And what are you trying to accomplish with the multiband? Well, Feldman is a huge uh, police fan and Sting has like this really like his picking style is is super like it's super picky and it's just super like defined sounding and um that multi-band just helps to achieve that i feel like and it gives it it gives it like a nice low end too but yeah it helps i feel like it helps for the pick attack so speaking of pick attack you prefer fingers or pick depends on the player if players are incredible with their fingers then i can use it i'd say like nine times out of ten when a bass player is like oh i can play with my fingers and they come in they usually can't and i make them play with a pick <laughs> however if a bass player just comes in and doesn't tell me that and then starts playing with their fingers and they usually rule <laughs> so but yeah we're very feldman's a bass player and we're very very no pun intended but picky about our bass picking and uh yeah, we got like really into that. I think it's super important, actually. Yeah. It's one of the most important things to focus on, yeah. honestly. Do you find that a lot of guys can't pick hard enough to yes. uh, get it right? Yeah, I, I like people who who pick like super hard. And if they can't pick hard enough, then John will just grab the bass and be like, let me do it. How do you uh, handle tuning issues with uh, people that pick really hard? Well, 
for a lot of the sections, we I'll just have them like pick as hard as they can and like tune the note to the pick attack. So like it's gonna be like when they pick, it's gonna arc and it's gonna go like slightly sharp, obviously. So like I'll just like make sure that it's in tune when they're picking that hard. And um, then I also in the mix I'll run like an auto tune plugin on the bass too, just to make sure that it's like super in tune at what point do you tune to the sustain or do you never tune to the sustain yeah i tune to the sustain if it's like a long rung out note then i'll have them like pick it differently so that the arc is not as drastic and that it's more even and some not too often because we usually get our bass set up like before every bass session but sometimes yeah I'll ha- if it's like long sustained notes like i'll have to like punch in note by note if the tuning is like really an issue speaking of setups and tuning let's go back to guitar for a second um, I think that a lot of people don't realize how big of a deal this is in getting a finished, awesome guitar tone, uh, is having this part just meticulous. So, yeah, I'm sure you guys have experienced guys that play guitar and maybe they start death gripping with the left hand and pulling chords out of tune or, you know, where they palm mute makes it go sharp a little or whatnot. How do you guys handle tuning issues on guitar? My secret is one word, Evertune. Okay. It's a new invention. It's <laughs> oh, a yeah, new, I know oh, about no, it. Evertune I'm, is it's amazing. <laughs> I'm sure you guys know what it is, but for people who don't, yeah, it's it's a new type of bridge on a guitar. And you're, for rhythms, I always will use it. I will never probably record it. I mean, for like the kind of stuff that I do, I, like I will nine times out of 10, I will use an Evertune. Yeah, it's, it's the best thing ever. It's like... It's cool because uh, you can tune the pegs on there. Like it's really weird because when you when you actually turn the tuning pegs, like the string won't change because there's like a spring in the actual Evertune that that holds it in note for like I don't know. You can turn the peg like six or seven times and it'll just stay on the same note. But like you know, for better players that want vibrato, you can go to the end of what they call there's three zones so that you go to the end of zone two and you can vibrato. But then you know if you have someone that's pulling it out of tune and stuff, you can you go back on it a little bit and you can't even bend the strings. Like you can bend the string as hard as you can. That would be like a three note bend and it'll just stay in tune. So it's like, it's insane. It just, it, it looks really weird when you're doing it. Cause you're like, the note should be changing, but it's not. It's it's the craziest thing, but it's like the best thing ever. It's amazing. I need to get one of those. Science, man. And like, I won't use that for like solos and stuff or something that's really expressive, but for rhythms, yeah, it's incredible. So, I've heard, and I don't know because I haven't really messed with the Nevertune. I've heard that it does have like that there is a trade off, like it hurts the tone a little bit or the sustain a little bit. Is that true? Do you find that? We have ours on a Les Paul, or we have a couple of them, but the main one that we use is on a Les Paul, and that's a super heavy guitar anyway, like super, a lot of wood, really thick. And um, that, and like they cut a, a sizable chunk out of the back of, gu- of the guitar, but I haven't really noticed the tone change and honestly like for the tuning and the convenience it's so worth it to me yeah the benefits far outweigh like two percent difference in in the tone did you guys see that guitar made out of cardboard no yeah yeah the the stratocaster yeah (laughs) i just saw it i didn't watch the video though so i didn't i didn't hear it but it looked pretty nuts watch that video man i can't hear any difference Oh wow. Okay, I'm gonna that, look. I gotta check that out. <laughs> I think I saw it in passing and was like, okay, I'm not clicking this. Okay, but <laughs> but but I guess I will. So as far as getting guitars and bass set up, I know we always tell people that it's super important, and not yes. just not just that it's super important, but it's super important to work 
with a tech that you know and trust and who will sit there and get the job done for you. Because if you just take it to Guitar Center or something, it's just going to be some guy who's going to do a job kind of half-assed and then you're going to pick up the guitar and go to the studio or go home. And that's it. That's the end of it. And I find that oftentimes um, guitars have to be set up for a certain purpose and sometimes it takes a little bit of tweaking so what are your what are your thoughts on that yeah we have an awesome guy named willie in la that we use all the time and um he's just like super reliable and like if we ever have an issue like we can go back to him and yeah like it's just there's nothing worse than getting your guitar set up and then setting down to track and everyone's ready and then it's like or the bass and and the intonation's out like that's just like the biggest buzzkill and so yeah I i think it's just crucial to find a tech that you can develop a relationship with and that knows like you and knows what you do and just that you can trust that it's just that they're just going to do it right every time because you don't want to put bumps in in the road for your sessions. Yeah, I think it's just going to make your tracks unmixable basically or much yeah. harder to mix if you don't if you let this stuff go at the beginning. Yeah. Absolutely. So how often, you said that before every bass session, do you mean per album or per song or just literally per time that you're going to go track bass? Per album. Okay. Yeah, we'll get it set up per album. Like we do a lot of like one-off songs and stuff. And and for those, like we just get, because a lot of them just don't get used. And so we, we just get away with, you know, doing what we have. So we don't have to like spend the money and get it set up every time. But definitely every album we'll get the bass set up. We like to get the guitars set up and everything like, at least like once every six weeks or so just because yeah we have a guy for bass and we have a guy for guitar too actually like two separate guys and um yeah they both are killer and and if i could get it set up every day i would (laughs) but i don't (laughs) so every six weeks no matter what's going on yeah pretty much it's just like a good feeling to just like get the guitar back and just like have it be like new again pretty much yeah and how big of a deal is the guitar itself to you like huge deal so if the guitarist has a guitar that he's all emotional about like and you don't think the guitar is very good like what's your how do you approach that like can you talk a little bit about that? So, yeah, so there's two different things. So sometimes a player will have an instrument that doesn't sound good. For instance, I was recording Mikey Way from My Chemical Romance two weeks ago, and he brought this bass that like sounded like pretty bad, and I was tracking with him, and I was like, this doesn't sound very good. But then halfway through the song, I was like, but it has like a certain sound, and it sounds like him. So I was like, okay, cool. So we're, we're going to keep using this. If the instrument gives the player an identity, then I'll use it. But if not, I'll just be like, like Stick to Your Guns had a bunch of guitars that they brought in and our Les Paul just crushed all of them clearly. So we just used that and they were okay with it because it's it clearly sounded better. I think that that's a great way to go about it. There's, I find that sometimes people get attached to instruments for no good reason. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what about strings? How often do you change those with guitar and bass and what are your go-tos? As often as possible. If we use Ernie Balls, we're endorsed by Ernie Ball. And so, yeah, that's what we use on everything. Yeah, we'll, we'll just, like, whenever they get dead, we change them pretty much, you know, try to do it, like, once every week or two. Assuming we're not, like, doing, like, intense guitar tracking. Like, if we're, like, in the middle of an album, we'll change the strings a few times, like, throughout the course of the album. I change mine every, like, hour and a half because I feel like there's a certain point where that new string thing kind of goes away by 20%, yeah. and it's usually around right there. Yeah, when we're doing, like, albums and stuff, we'll definitely change them, like, a lot, but... If we're not and we're just like kind of writing and like playing and stuff, you know, we'll try to change them like once every week or two. 
but yeah, new new strings sound. Yeah, there's nothing better than like feeling or hearing new strings. It just has certain nuances that you can't really get with dead strings. So do you guys use any amp sims besides the Kemper? Yes. So when we write, we use, yeah, lately I just, I just bought a Kemper recently and so I've been using it and I'll probably keep using it a lot, but some awesome amp sims I think are soft tube um, metal amp room is great for like writing and stuff. And, and we've used it on like a ton of records too, that you probably can't even tell. And then soft tube vintage amp room is incredible. Like I use that on tons of records as well it's really good for um it gets a really good like vox tone i think it's really good for like edge u2 style type things and um stuff like that i think it sounds really cool the vintage amp room soft tube if you turn that it's like the the green what what is it zach the green uh distortion or whatever it's the it's the fender model right yeah the, it sounds just like uh george harrison's guitar in oh darling yeah on, nice. on the beatles so it's really cool for that like vintage stuff but for for me i, I like to use uh i think amplitude is really cool for writing because you can just pull up pretty much any anyone and it's like the only amp sim that got the endorsements from the companies to use the actual names so i mean i guess i trust in that and they have a lot of cool like pedal selections as, as well there's this one like really cool kind of phasey pedal on there that I use all the time. And then uh, it has like Slash's signature stuff. I like his wah pedal. So yeah, the Amplitude is, is a really cool uh, guitar sim for me. How do you guys change your approach when you're working with those? Like n- not in the pre-pro phase of if you're like going to actually use one of those tones on a record, clearly it's a different process than using a real amp. Like what, do you, what are the main differences in your approach? Yeah, I mean, if we're doing something in like the the demo stage and it just sounds fucking cool and we're like we usually just keep it because it i mean what's the point in in trying to change it if it's like if we're stoked on it you know and a lot of the times we try to change to beat it and we just can't so i kind of think the demo stage is just it's kind of more like a vibe it's like yeah you know it's kind of like there really isn't a demo stage but if you say that (laughs) if you say that it kind of helps you like accept things that you would normally put up on a pedestal and then in retrospect you look back and you're like oh that was actually really awesome so yeah for sure yeah, agreed cool well what's your favorite mic on an acoustic a flea 47 mixed with a telefunken pencil mic and how do you go about blending acoustics in with super dense heavy arrangements using multi-band compression or or just a filter to filter out the low end and here's an interesting fact actually john has this old martin that we use for every acoustic thing ever and we've never changed strings on it ever an intern changed strings one time and john made him take the old strings out of the garbage and put it back on it because john hates the sound of new strings on an acoustic Ooh. Wow. <laughs> yeah, we'll just we'll just change out one string at a time as they break. That's how yeah. how, how they get how they get changed. Yeah, we don't change the strings on it, <laughs> and it sounds really good. Fair enough. Cool. Is there any other guitar bass uh, tidbits that you think people should really pay attention to? Or buy an Evertune, buy a Les Paul, buy a Kemper. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. <laughs> That's pretty much what I have to say. <laughs> and buy a P bass. Yeah, I, I think a P bass and a jazz bass are just essential. Yeah, oh, yeah, for sure. All right, thanks guys for being on. Uh, thanks for sharing your tips and tricks, and uh, talk to you awesome. next time. Thanks, yep, guys. sounds good. Thank thanks you. Again. The Unstoppable Recording Machine.
Machine Podcast is brought to you by Stam Audio. Stam Audio creates zero compromise recording gear that is light on the wallet. Only the best components are used, and each one goes through a rigorous testing process with one thing in mind, getting the best sound possible. Go to stamaudio.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy slash podcast and subscribe today.